0: Hello, I'm Zev Newworth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented value-based and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization folks. Um, the focus of this interview is an approach to primary care that is quite divergent from the mainstream. It's different in numerous ways, and it's creating results which are quite frankly superior to the mainstream approach to primary care. Our guest today, Dr. Chris Crow, has a compelling story to tell. He's an inspiring leader and a bold reframer of healthcare. I've had the privilege of speaking with him a couple of times in the past. And I have to say, just was frankly awed by him as a person and impressed with what he and his colleagues are doing. Now, before I introduce uh, Dr. Crow, I'd like to make a request of you all. If you like the show, please leave a rating and review. It helps others find the podcast. Also, if you find value in these series, please share it with others through LinkedIn or Twitter. A growing number of you are doing this, and I really appreciate you spreading the mission and the message of creating new healthcare. So uh, again, I'd love to welcome Chris uh, to our show today. Chris, how are you?
1: Great. Uh, Very appreciative of of the intro. I'll make sure my family hears it so they can uh, think their dad actually does something credible.
0: I have a whole page uh, that I'd love to read about you, but I'd rather just let you talk about the work you're doing with the Catalyst Health Network and, and just amazing work. But before we jump into that, and I'd love you to talk about uh, that, we'll get to that in a minute, but I just want to ask you, you know, you've been in primary care and healthcare for decades now, um, although you do look uh, young um, and younger than your stated age, but- um, You're doing great so far. I
1: really like what you. you just said it. Maybe,
0: <laughs> maybe- um, <laughs> You know, if you could start by sharing with us, what do you see as an expert, as a practitioner, as someone in the field of play? What do you see as the real fundamental problems in our healthcare system and maybe, you know, particularly in primary care?
1: Well, I don't know if I'm an expert, but I have been after this for a, a couple of decades. And it really was built around an annoyance of what I was experiencing going through medical school and residency that continues today. Of something you just want to make better and in the, the older you get and I am now actually 50 more and more you're thinking about you know how do you leave it better than you found it and and, and that's been online for me since my 30s and and healthcare is a rich environment to leave it better than, than you found it my my town I grew up in had three physicians in it and they really took care of the whole town they were the mayor and the head of the city council and the head of the Presbyterian Baptist Methodist Church and so they just did things to take care of the community as a whole which inspired me there's only 7,000 people in my town it inspired me to go into to primary care quite quite frankly even though I'm I'm not necessarily a a scientist type of uh, physician that that many many are and I never really got into medicine to get out of it from a seeing patient standpoint I thought that's what I would always do because that's what I, I saw those those mentors of mine do the door started opening because I kept asking, why do we do it this way? Why do we do it this way? And I still ask, why do we do it this way? And I think, you know, what I've evolved as more of kind of a systems thinking strategist type of, type of leader, I guess you would say in that, in that category, it's like, what are the, what are the big arcs that you think you can make a a difference in over the next decade or so, and what's been happening over the last decade or so, and what you see is is that we have blinders on as a nation to um, the tyranny of low expectations for our healthcare system, which is so ironic because we're so individually customer focused and want things to be customized our way, yet we let healthcare, which is so woven into the fabric of every community and every individual, we let it just perform so uh, badly in, in, in quality clinically, uh, in cost and in service. And so I, it's, it's really as America being great uh, as a nation, it is, it's just, uh, it's, it's beyond me how we uh, allow this to continue to happen year after year. Yet we do. And there's the main reason behind that is of course, money and the stakeholders that I have turned um, the healthcare system, which should have been for keeping people healthy into a wealth system, uh, generating wealth for, for a few.
0: I've been thinking about that last statement you made that who's actually making out in this healthcare system, because it doesn't seem to be most of the providers. It doesn't seem to be most of the patients. I mean, again, there are wonderful things that the healthcare system does, but still hospitals are struggling someone's got to be making out here because there's so much uh, inertia and resistance to change but let me uh, dive down with you in in this i love that statement the tyranny of low expectations because you're so right in in every other part of our lives we have expectations and we set expectations and if you're not meeting those expectations we'll just take our business elsewhere i mean you know you think about digital if it takes more than 3 to 5 clicks i'm i'm out of there and Yet in healthcare, it is this tyranny of low expectations, although I think that's changing, right? As people have choices and have options. On your website, there was a statement that I read. Uh, it was in the Catalyst Health uh, Network site. It said, healthcare the way it should be. You know, I'm wondering, and somewhere else it says, you know, we have, we, are, we, we have, we are, we continue to challenge the status quo to help our communities thrive, which I love. So what is it that you're doing in your group that's different if I was either maybe starting with a, a patient, uh, you know, experience, what's different? Let's say if I was going to go to a mainstream primary care group, and for the providers, what's different?
1: Uh, lots in that question, but I'll, I'll try to frame it this way for you: is that we believe that there's basically three main stakeholders in healthcare in, in in this particular market. There's there's the people that are receiving the care. There's the providers, the people that are providing the care, and then there's uh, people or organizations or governments that are paying for the care. If, so if you're not receiving, providing, or paying for the care, you better be really valuable in some way to those three stakeholders. Unfortunately, uh, where all the wealth is and, and dollars are in healthcare are not in those three, and they're actually extracting value. And so what, what we constantly are doing is asking the question, how can we create win-win-wins? for the physician who provides the care, the patient who receives the care, and whoever or whatever may be paying for the care. And when you have that simple frame, you, you only do things that check all three, three boxes. So that, that's a really important, just foundational piece of what we are. And, and connected to helping communities thrive is that we do think that healthcare is one of the three pillars of, of a thriving community, along with education and business. And if any of those pillars are, are are not strong, you don't have a thriving community because you don't have a healthy community to be educated. You don't have a healthy workforce to to be productive in the community. So health is a, is is one of the pillars, and we know that primary care, actually over the long term, relationships with their patients lead to longer life, lower costs, and more good days than bad. Some people may say, you know, less. know less days of disability so why wouldn't that be a prescription for America that you would want to help all your communities thrive and in some help America thrive and what what would it take well it would take to provide creating a system that helps you know you hear people talk about the quad aim but ultimately it's about how are patients satisfied and how how, well how are the providers or the physicians in this case for us um, uh, finding joy in their work and impact in, in their lives And then whoever's paying for it, finding a return or a value of that. And so what we do is we surround our physicians, our primary care physicians, with a team, a tech-enabled service team, to expand their capacity. It allows these physicians who have been burnt out and are on the fee-for-service trail to actually have resources that they're not necessarily paying for directly that scales them in the areas that they needed for tough clinical cases, pharmacists, case managers, social workers, care coordinators to manage, manage, you know, you know, multiple uh, stops on an individual's health journey. That heretofore, all they've had is their 10 by 10 exam room with the crinkly paper on the on the bed as their only source of impact, other than maybe a phone call now and then or an email. Now you have this extended care team that's virtual, that can that's named. that that you know the names of them. It's not a robo call of somebody else at a different time. Your patients get to know them just like they know that you're a medical assistant. And so here's the important thing. You've you've expanded the capacity and taken the load off of the physician to where you can have a continuity of care, not because you see the physician three times a year, but continuity throughout the year and throughout the health journey. And so the physician begins, begins to get some scale. The patient feels more known. There's more people attending to them, and it might be through tech, and a lot of times. But even those interactions are with named people that they know through the omni channel ways that they want to actually communicate to, to make up for different generations and different technology acumen that they have. So these patients begin to feel more known, and when you begin to feel more known and you under you're understood, there's a better chance the behavior economics start to work in the favor of the patient for better outcomes. What are better outcomes? They want to be healthier. They want to be more productive. And who accrues those benefits? Whoever's paying for the care. Whoever's paying for the care over time is going to benefit for a more productive, healthier patient population. And so it makes this virtuous cycle of an expanded care team that allows to uh, the physician's capacity to be expanded, the patient to be known better, and then whoever is paying for it to get that return. And the key to that piece is making sure that that however it's paid for, it does align with a virtuous cycle of incentives back to the provider. And the provider or the primary care physician in this particular case has to be aligned in ways that heretofore fee-for-service does not. Fee-for-service is a reactive care model um, that's not built to pay for any type of proactive care or keeping people healthy. It's just a reactive uh, uh, care model that doesn't align the incentives for health that any contracts we do um, are to move the ball more in the in the direction of prospective payment and align incentives around total cost and, and overall health.
0: Two questions and follow up just one is a little bit of a deep dive. You mentioned technology, so is there in this extended care team and and the sort of extended care ecosystem you're creating? do you use data in a way to give providers a sense of who's sick or who needs help getting ahead of that? What kind of data or information are you supplying to the provider that doesn't overwhelm them, but actually gives them actionable information? And secondly, uh, you mentioned reaching out to the patient, that continuity of care. And so could you give an example of that as well?
1: Sure. So, but as it relates to uh, examples of how we, Um, give information or get information to the patient to the physician so again what I would ask you to think of is the physician as a a leading member of a team okay so the physician is no longer on an island it's got a team you know it's got a full from a sports analogy you got you got a full point guard small forward shooting guard center and 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 they're the they're the center let's say or they're the point guard and they have all these other acumens around them to help them lead lead their team for the patients so everyone has the, the, the stat off the tip of their tongue around the 5% of the patients that make up 50% of the cost. So whatever that cohort is in your population, yes, you want to stratify it and make sure you're paying attention to the, to the higher costs. That doesn't mean you're ignoring the other costs. You have to have a different, almost a different operating model for them. And we can talk more about that, but for the ones that are the the chronics that actually you can make impact on. It's finding those and stratifying those and making sure they're getting connected to that broader care team to help the physician along that patient's health journey. So one is identification, making sure who that is. Physicians love lists, in my experience. They just say, hey, just show me which ones you're talking about. And I give them a list and they go, oh yeah, Miss Jones, Mr. Hendricks, o- o- Johnny Ward. Yep, all of those. That's That's the list, I I can see how you put those on list. So once they have that, they'll start to push them into the team. Now let's talk about a couple of ways that we either give them information or they begin to trust the system. Two things physicians uh, have really troubles with are managing a patient's network. Let's say they're at Cigna one day and they're Blue Cross the next and they're on an HMO versus a PPO, the physician can't keep up with who's in and out of network potentially. And so our referral management system, <laughs> different than the 99% of America today that still probably uses a, a business card and a tick sheet to say, hey, go here for the colonoscopy, and then they lose it in their car or in the bathroom outside of your office. You know, we're actually putting it into a – it's very light touch, but it tracks – when, they, when, they, uh, when the specialist or the, or the facility got the referral, when it got scheduled, the patient has a record of it as well electronically, and you can start to track that. And, and through that tracking, if they wanted to send to an orthopedic surgeon for a knee replacement, and they're at a, let's just say, a large Fortune 100 employer that wanted to cut out 50% of the high-cost orthopedic surgeons in the market, there's no way our physicians can keep up with that type of nuance. And so what, they, what, they, what we do is we load that information of unique things about their network, whether it's an employer or their Medicare Advantage network. And so the physician can trust that, hey, I need an orthopedic surgeon. Here's who I usually use. If that doesn't work, let me know, and we'll, we'll, we'll um, just use one of my other ones that's in network, and we'll, we'll adjust the records to, to what makes sense. So that just kind of happens almost as an automated thing. The other thing that happens, another example, is around medications. Those high cost patients all have one thing in common medications. So we have a robust I would say, and many of the fourth, there's a couple of Fortune uh, 20 company CEOs that have been through here and say that it's, it's robust like nothing else in America around medication adherence and medication management programs and dispensing that actually um, is, is right in the middle of the physician patient relationship. to to a standpoint where the physician can trust that whether they're given an ARB or an antidepressant or whatever the class of drugs, beta blocker, statin, that, you know, formularies are different year by year, every six months by every six months, payer by payer, and physicians can't keep up with what's what. Yet so much of the administrative hassle in a physician's office today is getting calls, emails, Faxes from pharmacies or patients or patients' caregivers around, hey, this drug's not covered, this drug changed on the formulary. We take all of that out. 90% of that work is gone when you start to work with this expanded care team and the pharmacy that's integrated into it to make sure that, with whatever the physician prescribes, that care plan is adhered is to and m- the right medication at the right price, at the right effectiveness is delivered and if that means it needs to change from one statin to another that's generally fine and it's gone and it goes back to the physician but the physician doesn't have to manage figuring that out the physician staff doesn't have to manage figuring it out the system that we have in place figures that out and then updates it and then tracks that patient that patient now has a pharmacist named tony that that is following him just like along with dr crow that pharmacist has a panel and so the the PMP the, the, the cost savings on that end up being fantastic. The experience for the patient is such that they never have to go to Walgreens or CVS again, which is one of the worst retail experiences in the country right now still. Um, and now the provider has these, has much, again, has scaled because they don't have all these operational tasks that aren't value add necessarily, but take up a lot of time to either see more patients go home and see their family, or whatever other leisure activities that will start to reduce burnout so they can be their whole selves uh, for patients each day. And then the the patients come back and tell the doctor how what a great experience they had and it ended up saving them money and they're taking their medicines now like they never had before and they feel better and you get a reinforcing cycle, a virtuous cycle with that.
0: Oh my god, that sounds fantastic. And you've hit such big areas both from a patient population health perspective as well as from a physician perspective in terms of identifying stratifying patients who need more care more continuous care uh, the referral management system you talked about and and medications these are really really major issues um, in terms of both health and healthcare provision let me turn to the issue of, of payment so two questions first in building this ecosystem, this support extended care system, if you're not charging the provider, who pays for that? And sort of along the same lines, how are you, uh, you mentioned before, you know, in a fee-for-service model, which is the predominant model in our country for primary care, as well as every other aspect of care delivery, the physicians on this mill, just, you know, just churning and burning and trying to get through as many patients so they could generate RBUs so that they can, you know, pay for the overhead costs and all that, particularly in primary care. It's a matter of of business survival, uh, which is not the way you'd want to practice medicine and definitely not the way you want to receive care from your primary care physician uh, or primary care provider. So conversely, who's paying for all of this? How does that get paid for that larger business model you have? And then how do you incent physicians, how do you compensate physicians to practice in this different way?
1: Well, the, the last one is a, is a doozy. Uh, so the, the first was a little easier because where we are in the country, it's, it's, it's not necessarily probably too much different than a lot, than a lot of areas in terms of, you know, whether it's the patient center medical home models that we were doing in the early 2010s that move now into the ACO models um, uh, on the commercial side of your traditional, uh, care coordination fees that build all this infrastructure. One of the one of the problems a lot of ACOs did is they took care coordination fees um, and then just gave them straight to the physician and just asked them to change, and that isn't going to happen. So you, there, there was a kind of a waste of those dollars. We've spent all of those dollars and more on building this infrastructure so they could have services that were built by physicians. We're 100 physician governed. Our entire board, you know, um, is is all all physicians, and so. You know, anything we do has to go through the filter of, is this valuable to you? Do you think it's valuable to the patient? And will it help, help return to whatever contract we have from a performance standpoint? And so the, the opportunity for them to perform is on that you know generally like a 50-50 gain share model. And that's where we've saved well over $100 million over the last five years on the, on the, on the uh, commercial side. The Medicare Advantage side, which of course in Medicare with now with DCE that we'll be entering into soon, on the Medicare Advantage side, of course, those models uh, are a little more mature. The the payer of record is the government. They keep they keep their patients their their beneficiaries a little bit longer than your, than your commercial population does. So they've got even better models that, would in, uh, that we've been using over the years to invest in uh, in primary care. In those situations, we're we're using more of a of a, a PCP or professional cap uh, capitated service, giving part of the premium that we. We manage every month. And so that allows for more upfront dollars to uh, incentivize physicians on certain behaviors and activities. And and what's key for us is that our model is for all their patients and always has been. When all the payers kind of came to me when I was practicing uh, physician at at Village Health Partners, which was one of the first, you know, NCQA level three patient center medical homes in the nation back in like 2007, they said, hey, can you grow that group to like four or five hundred? I really did not want to employ physicians. I wanted to find a way to um, knit it together in our community. And and so these these models now, um, I told all the payers, had to have everyone involved because I didn't want to have my physicians be schizophrenic and you know every third patient was in a value-based construct and you could use the care team for that or you know, only your Blue Cross patients, or only your Medicare Advantage patients. I wanted you to, not, I wanted you to have the ability to say, all your patients are eligible for this. Now, I would say we probably cover ninety-eight percent of, of a patients, uh, physician's panel with value-based contracts that are in these type of one of these two type of constructs. So the two percent, if they happen to come into our platform, we don't we don't send them out. We just say, yeah, we'll take we'll take care of them. Now more and more, um, you know, I would say for more some of our advanced physicians and, and and that have taken more and more of our care service and are growing their groups. I mean, they're approaching, you know, forty ish percent of their dollars, kind of more in a perspective value based. Type uh, format now, so I, I think in, not surprising they they perform better than the ones that have fifteen percent in that of their revenue in that type of category. So that gets into your uh, question around around incentivizing. Uh, the main thing that can incentivize best is is when the the financial model really aligns the incentives. Uh, uh, the, the the prospective payment models that are attached to a total cost of care, whether that's an MA or a direct to employer, or even maybe where DCE is is moving to, in our view, does a much better job of allowing for innovation because you're given a, you're given a dollar figure, and your opportunity to to do more is to is to uh, figure out how to manage that patient in a total cost of care way that doesn't sacrifice quality. And in fact, improves quality usually. Um, Whereas the fee-for-service world just doesn't give you margin to innovate, in our opinion, uh, the dollars come in for that service. There's no other. There's no other CPT codes of, of any significance that start to build um, a performance operating model in fee-for-service It's not rewarded. Care coordination is not necessarily rewarded uh, at the same way that that it is under the financial model. So that's a big piece. Peer-to-peer is another way that we we work with our own physicians is, again, we're 100% physician governed. So there's a lot of peer-to-peer teaching. And ultimately, it gets back to the very, very core of what I talked about earlier about helping communities thrive and having these independent physicians actually want to continue to practice in, in, an, in an independent way. It doesn't mean we don't have large groups. We do. But those large groups are independent from um, having to say where they send their patients. And that's a that's a big piece of of some of the things going on in America today with our integrated health systems is sometimes that's kind of a locked in network and may, that may be the right answer sometimes, but not all the time. Our physicians are free to make the right choice with the patient at all times. And so that is a philosophy that attracts certain physicians, not necessarily for everybody. There's a lot of other options out there today, whether you want to work in a, on a beach and do telehealth, whether you want to work in a retail clinic, just part-time hours, whether you want to work directly at an employer's, Office. I mean, there's lots of opportunities for primary care. It's the golden age of primary care, in my, in my opinion. But for those that want to uh, continue to serve their community as a whole, not just a segment like a Medicare Advantage, but a community as a whole, and they have been in the community for a while, we, we are here to help continue to allow them to survive and thrive and, and expand their ability, uh, help their patients become more known, and ultimately make them be able to thrive financially as well with the value that they create.
0: You know, in a previous discussion, you mentioned uh, something about advanced primary care being different than direct primary care, and I get the feeling you've been describing advanced primary care, but I wanted to check that out. Can you tell us what you mean by advanced primary care and how it's different than direct primary care? Because there's been so much about direct primary care as well.
1: Completely agree, and there's certainly some muddied waters and gray areas, but I would say yes, (laughs) heretofore our conversation is me describing advanced primary care, i.e., uh, a, a physician that has a team and technology behind it to, to better care for a population, to give a different level of outcomes and actually broaden and expand their capacity. You know, if primary care for America is a prescription, then we need to help our physicians be able to take care of more people, which we can do, um, rather than less people. Direct primary care generally is about shrinking your population limiting in our your overhead providing the patient with your cell phone and your email and that's the hook is that you have all this direct access to your physician uh, it's it's all about access and you know the the year to year if you think about direct primary care and this is this is a this is not true for everybody i think there's some there's some groups that are doing some really good direct primary care with employers and i could name some of those but your traditional uh, one doctor uh, direct primary care is taking care of 400 patients, small staff. That's different than what we do. That can provide value for the patient. It can provide value for the physician. And I'm not saying it's bad. It's just different than what we're doing. And if we're trying to leave the world a better place, and we think primary care for America is the is the prescription, then we're trying to expand the capacity of, of primary care in a way that that improves burnout, ironically, into uh, better care for our nation. So that that's just what we're after, it's, t- it's a different track.
0: And just to you know, kind of go back on what you said, I really love this idea that in the past, uh, again, with these patient-centered medical home models, it was more about you know care coordination fees that were going to these practices. But instead of giving care coordination fees, you're actually giving them a care coordination team, an extended team and the technology and the enablement uh, as you were describing in this advanced primary care and you're also maybe to a certain extent removing the uh, disincentives of fee-for-service payment and uh, introducing, you know, the opportunity for incentive, aligning, uh, you know, their compensation so that they're essentially working along with you to improve care, enhance care, uh, improve care coordination. That's the, almost the kind of the one-two that I'm seeing. Is that is that a fair characterization or would you edit that?
1: Yeah, it, it, it is. You can pick your metaphor and your cliche of one, two, we call it the me and the we. Again, uh, we're in Texas and we do sports analogy and I'm criticized a lot from doing sports analogies too much, but we think of it as like a league and a team, you know, whether that's your, you know, your, your college leagues of the SEC and the football teams of the NFL and the teams where, you know, one really doesn't coexist, doesn't exist without the other, right? You know, the the NFL would not be the NFL without the Cowboys and the Eagles and the Redskins and the Giants and the Packers Um, and the Packers on their own wouldn't really be much either, right? And so it's this idea of how do we synergize and bring together some things that only the NFL can do or only our league can do to bring about uh, more uh, value and prosperity to uh, the teams, or in this case, the practices, and the customers they serve, which is their patients, which are also uh, our patients. And so that, that's an analogy that works really well in football country of Texas.
0: That's great. In terms of your contracts, uh, it sounds like you're going to downside risk and full risk contracts. So it's not just primary care. You're, you're managing total cost of care. Uh,
1: it's it's evolving certainly more and more in that way and, and more on the government side, right, where you have a longer term and actually, a, you know, a, a population that has more acuity to it, which means there's going to be more cost and more, oppor- therefore, more opportunity to improve that. And so in your over 65 than the DCE programs and the Medicare Advantage programs. Yeah, we're, we're taking on more and more risk uh, each year as we go, which means you have to have different skill sets and, and ultimately different alliances and partnerships if you think about the the total cost of care and how you then need to consider your uh, facilities and uh, uh, specialties and ancillaries and post-acute issues. I mean, there's so many things that start to have to come together. And what where we're, where we're blessed with is you know we've stayed focused in Texas, and so we have geographic scale here. So I'm not I'm not in you know 17 states um, and, and a little bit in each state. What we are is 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 very deep here, and have deep deep long relationships that allow us to uh, take care of these million lives in a single geography, or at least an expanded geography of the northern half of the state of Texas end to end. While we're primary care physicians, we we have enough concentration to be able to really push the downstream market in ways that are virtuous for, again, the physician and the patient and the
0: payer. So, and I hope you don't mind my asking this question, but when you reminded us of, that you're in Texas, you know, one of the issues, especially when you're taking more global risk is the issue of overutilization and particularly overutilization of specialists or hospitalizations or readmissions and ED visits. So, in having this extended care team, this information, this guidance, are you also helping your providers in terms of uh, referring to uh, surgeons that uh, don't overutilize and that demonstrate good outcomes? Have you gotten to that? You know, it's again, there are companies out there that are doing this sort of navigation, uh, like Transparent and others. And I'm just wondering if you're doing that.
1: Yeah, that's built into the referral management system. Again, we're connected to 7,000 different facilities and services and ancillaries and you know social determinant practices as well that you need at different times and and depending on the type of contract and the network construct so we are there informing that and it's only as good as the data we get so we are constantly looking at trying to make that better for sure but it's really interesting as you think about the overutilization because dallas fort worth is one of the top three probably highest cost markets in the nation over the last you know, a couple of decades, we we like to think that we're really improving that with not only access to primary care, but better side of service and better care management around medications and the cost savings. But even in a place like where we are, the strategies, even inside North Texas, differ 180 degrees from the standpoint of on the northern side of the metroplex, there's specialists galore and facilities galore. And so, yeah, a big piece of what we're doing is actually in, in a lot of PPO market type type products too. So a lot of what we're doing is trying to keep people from getting unnecessary util- utilization. It's a big piece of the strategy. You go south seven miles and it's a totally different strategy. There you're trying to get people access to just, they're making sure they're getting access to primary care. They're getting access to good care managers, getting them engaged, um, where utilization is is almost the opposite problem. There's not enough of it. For the, for the care that they need. So even in a metro area, you can't be a, a, a one-trick pony. You, you have to uh, have strategies that can be dynamic and flexible enough in your operating platform to take care of the patients um, as they are. We call that you know intimacy at scale.
0: That's fantastic. I really appreciate you making that point of underutilization as well. So what are some of the, and you've mentioned some along the way, but just, you know, What are some of the results and outcomes you've achieved with your network?
1: Yeah. Along the way, um, you know, you can't get into any of the gain share products these days until you uh, prove clinical quality. So we take, we take a lot of pride in that. Our, that we think our access to primary care has made a massive difference in this market. When we started um, 25% of all the 24 hour ERs in the country, were in Dallas, Fort Worth. That's a crazy stat in 2015. And, we kind of ring a bell around here anytime one of them closes and that we think that some of that was our own de- doing by not being accessible enough to have these you know these urgent care 24 hour clinics ER clinics um, show up. And so we've been doing a lot with access. We've also improved our going back to utilization through our referral management platform. when we first started the average time to see a specialist if you wanted to was around 28 days. We now have that down to four days, and so if you're thinking about, you know, what we talked about at the beginning, the consumers, how they, you know, want things now, and if, you know, if it is a proper utilization, we want we want good service from our downstream specialists. We want to have good partnerships with them. We want to have good communication back, and so we've really changed the narrative in in our market around that for the better. That we think, uh, from a cost standpoint, you know, I, I mentioned already the, the over 100 million. Where does that Where does that show up in terms of, you know, you know, micro precision? You know, if you're in our medication management program as part of our care management, depending on who you what kind of population we're uh, looking at, it could be a couple hundred dollars PM to PM to you could be a 3000 PM PM type patient that we bring in well under 2000 in certain cohorts. So massive, massive cost of care changes. Um, when you're talking about changing a, a chronic, multi-chronic, you know, six to eight medication person, if not more, and getting them on an adherence plan that actually adheres rather than the 60% adherence that our nation has and what that does to their clinical markers and their costs and, and, and being just diligent about building relationships with those patients, with the team, the physician generally already has a good relationship. And we just compound that uh, with this, with this team. Mentality to help these patients feel known, and then over time, just small decisions add up to better decisions for a person's life.
0: What are in your work right now as you're building all of this? What What are you know one or two major challenges that uh, if someone else was going to try to do what you're doing, what, what would you say to them? Here's the hard work. Here's where the challenges are.
1: The toughest thing for the whole more than decade we've been at this, and it'll continue to be for now, is the, is the status quo that tyranny of low expectations. that continues to actually surprise me year after year. Um, and I do think there's a lot of innovation coming. And while majority of it, I'm not necessarily that impressed with around digital health and, you know, you know, single uh, segment, you know, video type visits of a population. I do think you're right from a comment you said earlier that it starts to spark that uh, convenience gene that we've we've evolved as individuals in this country, it continues to fragment care. I don't think it actually accrues to the long term benefit of someone's health, but I do think it's disruptive. I think that disruptivity, if that's a word, will hopefully create more integration of those type of uh, of areas that have shown some micro impacts into a larger longitudinal relationship integration that hopefully will begin to to move the needle on, on what we call, you know, an overall population health. So the status quo is, is number one. There's, there's just so much money involved with, if you think of where all the money is in healthcare, there's, there's nothing about the drug companies that are in the top fortune 50 that would want the cost to go down. There's nothing around the insurance companies that would want the costs to go down. Heck, they make up 85% of the market cap of, you know, the New York stock exchange, you know, uh, from a healthcare standpoint, uh, there's 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 nothing about necessarily the the hospitals by themselves that would want a cost of care to go down. So you got a, you got a lot of hands in there that don't necessarily want the cost to go down. And so, what are you going to do when when they're the ones that are controlling the the premium dollar? It's a difficult status quo. So you just have to kind of take a long view and and how can you year after year, stay with it and and make impact. And every year we grow, every year we add more patients to our population. And every once in this advanced primary care model is now starting to take a lot more uh, national um, visibility. You saw what NASEM did back in the summer when they said primary care should be a common good. Last time they came up with something like that, they said, hey, we shouldn't be smoking in restaurants and on airplanes and look what happened. You know, so let's see, let's see. I think there's the wave, of costs are such that it just can't, it, it can't be sustainable. Right now, it's really difficult for the commercial markets because the labor shortage, so everyone's really scared to, to change anything big benefit-wise, but that's just where we are in a point in time. I mean, a year ago was very different, so um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that the generation of the future that is this more consumer-centric millennials, as they as they age and have more chronic disease, actually already than the predecessors did. And, uh, that are meet it's my generation at their age that they will continue to demand not only that convenience, but they'll understand the impact of the relationships that uh, are needed longitudinally, and and will will push to make that change. Because if we stay on this trajectory, your average millennial will have spent directly or indirectly, you know, half of their lifetime earnings on healthcare. That just that's just not sustainable.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's mind blowing, and it's you know I've seen that stat as well from the World Health Organization. So a couple of quick questions because I know we we got to wrap up here. You know, kind of continuing along the lines we're talking about now. If you were going to give uh, advice to senior healthcare leaders across the country, what would that be? What could you say to them, or what would you ask of them?
1: I, I think if you're in the hospital system business, I would not want to be a leader of a hospital right now. I don't see ten years where anything in the future is anything but a, diff, a very, very, very difficult road for you from an operating model standpoint. As the transparency becomes more and more painful for them to do, it's going to make them change. And I, I just I think that's a tough road to hoe. If you're talking about you know, senior health officials that are helping us with policy at the state and, and, and national level, you know we're putting all our eggs in our basket literally on this primary care for all. I mean, that's a big endeavor, but, you know, we also, you know, decided in the 60s that we were going to go to the moon and had no idea how we were going to do it and just did it a few years later. So we can do this when the, the citizens of America start to decide that this is really important. And you see these little micro pockets. I'll, I'll give you a little stat that we're seeing right now is that our new patient visits in our primary care offices are up like 15%. Now, again, we did help them create more capacity over the last few years, but still, that's it, a pretty steady new patient and in, in an independent practice. They're up 15, 20% um, in the last 12 months, not, not patients coming back after pandemic, but new patients. There seems to be another, uh, an appreciation of the need for primary care that came out of the COVID pandemic, specifically since it seemed to target those that were you know a little bit more frail, elderly, or, or, or not as healthy. That there's an appreciation that man, maybe I do need a primary care physician because I didn't have anybody to call. If this is to happen again, I wanna, I wanna have a relationship. I think there is important, there is an importance in that, in that that minute clinic down the street. I mean, that's helpful, but I can't. They don't know me. And so um, I'm a little bit hoping that that's a a precursor of what's to come in our country of a of a better appreciation and a need to make sure that we are able to. Um, have primary care be a common good the same way clean water in elementary school is.
0: I love that. I think that's an amazing vision and mission and really, really important. Chris, any any final comment or any final word before I sign off?
1: I just appreciate what you do. I've, I've been listening to some, some of your podcasts recently, and um, I think you've got a, a, a great vision as well. I appreciate your long-term view of it and the guests you bring on and I get great ideas out of it. Very, I would say zero of what we've done in the past is necessarily just my creation. It's, it's, it's integrating uh, thoughts and trials and errors of, of others. So I'm just appreciative for this opportunity and, and, and getting to know you.
0: Oh, thank you, Chris. And I, I feel the same about you and the work you're doing and your colleagues. This is not academic. This is so important to, you know, as you were just saying before, you know, everyone's health and Completely support. I completely agree with what you're saying. So, uh, you know, friends and colleagues, and we have to unfortunately bring this conversation to a close. I could uh, speak with Chris for so long. I have so many deep dive questions I'm really, really curious about, but um, didn't want to get too much in the weeds here. But as I do every episode, uh, I am going to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients, and those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. and we truly appreciate you for what you do, recognizing how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends, this is Zev Newworth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well.